The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As ever, only one subject on the agenda these days. I'm joined by Fintan O'Toole. Fintan, I was talking to Dennis Staunton the other day and he is a a former man of the theatre himself. And I suppose you could be characterised as as such too. You've been a dramaturg, among other things, as well as a theatre critic for many years. So can I just ask you the same question essentially I asked him, which is, as a theatre critic, what would be your review of the performance of Boris Johnson and his government over the last three days? So if you were reviewing it, I think uh, you'd have to say the play is called Arrested Development because really what we've seen exposed very much in in his first performance at Prime Minister's Questions was that Johnson just hasn't moved on from the time he was 19 or 20 uh, in the Oxford Union. You know, it's it, 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 his performance is a sort of not very good adolescent debating performance where it's, you know, a mixture of, you know, kind of over-the-top rhetorical bluster, bad jokes, I mean, n- none of it actually funny at all, and um, childish abuse, you know, the, the sort of, you know, big girl's blouse and chicken and, you know, it's, it's like a kid. Um, and none of it really uh, could be called what anybody has ever thought of as prime ministerial, you know. So he's playing a role, but he doesn't seem to quite know how to play it. Is there an element with that at all that he thinks he's doing in some way, what other populist leaders, most notably the one across the Atlantic, have done, which is the authenticity is you just kind of mess around, you don't do your homework, you just come out and blurt what comes out of your mouth and it works. I think that's what's worked to get him where he is. Um, But what we're kind of seeing is that it doesn't work very well when you actually gained power. So Johnson's been you know, let's hand it to him, you know, if if, if your aim is to become Prime Minister, by lying and by being lazy and by blustering. Um, he's brilliant at it, you know. He's, he's, Five stars. He's got there, right? So he's in number 10 down. But what we're seeing is that for the moment, at least, those despicable qualities that are very good for getting you into power are actually not very good for exercising power. You need, in order to exercise power, you do still need, at least in a democracy, you need some element of trust. People need, at some very basic level, to believe you when you say something. And what's absolutely clear with Johnson is that he has made no distinction at all between being Johnson, the mendacious journalist who makes stuff up, and being Johnson, the mendacious prime minister who makes stuff up. Remember, everything that's happened this week has been framed by two absolutely outrageous lies. I mean, just really, you know, <clears throat> staggering ones that in any other circumstance, you know, a prime minister would be would be hounded out of office for any one of them. One was the brazen lie about the fact that the prorogation of parliament was not to do with trying to stop people from uh, interfering with his, his drive towards uh, October 31st. I mean, you know, we, we now know the documents are coming out in court, I mean, showing that this was planned um, and it was planned entirely to stop Parliament from doing what it wants it to do. Um, I mean, so that's just lying. 
and and the other big lie is that uh, he's engaged in serious negotiations in Brussels. You know, the, the whole message is you shouldn't stop me now because I'm just on the brink of getting all these great concessions from from Brussels. We're in there, we're negotiating. Our strategy is working. They're afraid of us. Um, they they know we're serious about doing no deal and therefore we're about to get a great deal. That was the whole pitch. And of course, it's just completely untrue. I mean, then you get everybody in Brussels coming out and saying, well, we haven't heard of these negotiations. They're just not happening. You know, there have been no proposals whatsoever put forward. You know, there's a few kind of technical discussions at that sort of relatively junior level going on. But in terms of any kind of serious engagement, it's just not there. So there's there's two big lies. So he's conducting himself as prime minister in exactly the way he would if he were writing a column for The Telegraph. You know, it's just sort of make stuff up. Um, and what we're seeing is that British democracy is not yet so degraded that you can get away with that. Right. So so. There's enough people who, first of all, find the business of the prorogation humiliating. I mean, just, just their, their self-respect, you know, as as MPs, that you you can render us impotent and then ask us to sort of collude in a lie about why we're being rendered impotent. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll buy into this completely nonsensical story that you told us that it's all about a new Queen's speech and health and education. Um, you know, there's enough people have enough self-respect to say, actually, I'm not doing that. But also there's enough collective self-respect still in that institution where there's enough people who say, you can't just treat us like this. You can't, you can't just sort of, you know, base your entire approach that you're putting forward to Parliament on non-existent negotiations. And this is why Corbyn, for once, was very, very effective in Prime Minister's questions. by saying, we can't undermine your negotiations because there aren't any. And it was Corbyn's most effective line because everybody, everybody on both sides of the House knew that this was true. So I think um, Johnson, you know, Johnson's myth in a way, if you, if you want to look at the mythological Johnson, you know, which is in, in a way he's been preparing for for a long time, right, is, is, is um, you know, Prince Hal, you know, I've, 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 been, I've been a messer, um, I've, I've, I've hung around with bad people, um, I've told lies, I've stolen things, you know, but when I come into my own, when I become king, I'll be Henry V. I'd be the great national hero. And uh, he's used, if you read his book on Churchill, I've read it so you don't have to, but, you know, this is very much the, the, it's framed in this way, right, which is Churchill is a bounder, Churchill is a liar, Churchill is corrupt, Churchill is a complete, everybody thinks of him as a complete disaster. And then he becomes prime minister and then he is the, you know, the great national saviour. Uh, and it's sort of, you, what you're of course meant to understand from this is that when when Boris becomes prime minister, he will be transformed by the office into a Churchillian figure. Um, and um, you know, looking at this week, I don't think that's quite happening. And there, but there are some, I mean, there are some underlying political realities in that as well, aren't there? That Churchill came to power at a moment of true national crisis uh, a, of a, uh, a national government. So a huge majority, in fact, essentially the whole yeah. of the House of Commons yeah. were more or less united behind him after the, you know, the disaster of, of what was happening in Europe. Um, Boris Johnson had a very weak hand from the very start. And he decided to play, he and Dominic Cummings decided to play that weak hand in a very particular way, which was to pretend that they didn't at all. They had a very, very strong hand. They weren't going to take any nonsense anymore. They were going to clear the decks and people get out of their way because nothing was going to stop them. Do or die, October the 31st, etc., etc., etc. And that seemed to get them somewhere in terms of a rather pliant media, be it said, in the UK for several, for several weeks in August. But it really ran up against the buffers with a resounding crash, it seemed to be this week. And what you say about the House of Parliament... 
Corbyn was effective because he was against a weak opponent, partly yeah. I'd say, but also the the, the Tory MPs yeah. who ended up being uh, losing the whip finally were forensic, they were articulate, they knew what they were talking about and the contrast was pretty startling really. Yeah, it's huge and and I think I think you're absolutely right. The you know the 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 poker playing metaphor is right because that's that's the way they framed it, right? But it's like having a pair of twos, you know, and 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 you're playing against some pretty serious poker sharks who 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 probably have, you know, a pair of aces in the European Union. And the, so then it's all bluff, right? So it's it, it's all, can I make them think that I have a much stronger hand than I really do? Now, there's two problems with that. One is that the Johnson's bluff, he's good, at, he's a bluffer, right? So, you know, as I said, it's got him to number 10, so you can see why he might think he can bluff. The, the, but the first problem with it is that he... He doesn't. It's a kind of double bluff, right? So, so, and we've talked about this before. You know, I, I think the last time we were talking about this, you know, that, who who's he bluffing, and who is he trying to convince of what? So he's he's trying to convince two separate audiences of two separate things. So you look at the European Union and you say, "I'm the crazy man. I am. You know, you won't believe how tough I am." Uh, how reckless I am. I'm going to drive this whole thing off a cliff unless you give me concessions. And then it'll be hell for everybody. Right? That's, that's the message. Right? However, uh, there's no, he knows that there's no majority for that in either in the country or in parliament. So then he's been trying another bluff, which is to say, oh no, I'm really negotiating very hard. I really want a deal. And by the way, even if there is no deal, it won't be that bad. Now, you can't both say, I'm negotiating very hard for a deal in, in Westminster and you know, and say to the Europeans, I'm not negotiating with you at all until you give me all these concessions. And you can't both say, uh, no deal is is going to be hell for all of us. Um, I am the devil. I am your worst nightmares. Uh, and say, sure, it's just a bump in the road, you know, which is what they're say- saying at home. So first of all, if you're going to bluff, you, you, you have to know exactly what the message is, like what, what exactly is it you're, you're, you're trying to achieve. And he's trying to achieve two different things at the same time. And this would be really, really difficult to do if you were a political genius, right? So, so even if you were talking about one of the greatest politicians that we had ever seen, to pull this off would be incredibly difficult. And Johnson, this is the second problem, is he's just, he's just not that good. And he's not that good in the sense that, as you say, we, we've seen his skills are incredibly limited. He's lazy. He, he, the rhetoric, when you put it into a parliamentary context, is really dreadful. But also... Everybody can see that it's not that Johnson has a tell, it's that Johnson is the tell. You know, the fact that Johnson is prime minister is a huge sign of weakness, right? If you're, if you're the Europeans, you're saying, well, like, they, they've really reached the bottom of the barrel now. You know, like, this, if, if this, is, this is the last thing they can do, right, which is send in the clown. You know, they've tried everything else. That we, They've had all the tedious negotiation. They've they've kind of come down from all the highs that Theresa May uh, had had built them up to. They've ended up with the withdrawal agreement. They can't get that through. So the last throw of the dice is is Johnson. So so Johnson is a distress signal as far as the Europeans are concerned. Right? They're they're looking at him and saying, well, you know, this this place is in really serious trouble. Uh, they're not looking looking at him and saying, oh God, it's Boris Johnson. You know, this this is a, a world historic figure that we're facing whom we must be really terrified of. And what, of course, what Johnson's ended up doing is, is with his mixed messaging, is terrifying the wrong people, right? So, so um, the so far as we can see, 
the no deal stuff has had no real effect on the Europeans at all. I mean, they're not freaked out by it. They're not becoming nervous. They're kind of factoring it in. But it has terrified a sufficiently large number of people in the House of Commons and a sufficiently large number of people in his own party to create this crisis for himself. Isn't the underlying truth that um, Boris Johnson would probably, definitely rather have a deal of some sort, probably some very lightly amended version, if at all amended, of of Theresa May's deal? Um, But his priority is not that. His priority is to win a majority in the House of Commons. Yeah. So... That's the order in which these things come and one is far more important than the other and that's what's going to drive whatever he does over the next several weeks. Yeah, you can never forget that he has absolutely no principles whatsoever, right? So he he actually doesn't care about Brexit. I mean, remember, you know, he famously, you know, he had the, it seems it was actually three different columns written um, to to, to go in the... uh, in, in, in the Telegraph on the morning when he was going to announce uh, which which way he was jumping on Brexit. Um, remember that on that weekend, you know, he, he phones David Cameron to tell him that he was going to go for Brexit. He phoned him back a couple of hours later to say he changed his mind, you know, and then phoned him back again to say he was going to go for Brexit after all, you know. So he doesn't have principles in relation to this. I mean, Johnson famously was asked once if he had any convictions. They said he only had one for speeding, you know. So he's not attempting, I think you're absolutely right, he's not attempting to achieve a particular outcome as far as Brexit is concerned or Britain's relationship with the European Union is concerned. The, the, the goal is, is, you know, holding and staying in office. That's, that's all he really and wants. And isn't the possibility then that, um, and, you know, it was said from the very start with the appointment of Dominic, Dominic Cummings and the construction of the cabinet, that this was a team built to, um, to contest an election rather than a team built to sort out Brexit. And that with all we've said about his terrible week this week and all that, if he actually manages to get to his objective early next week, which is a general election in October, um, that he's not badly set up to do that. It's a gamble. It's a huge gamble, but it's a gamble which he could well win. Uh, yeah, I, see, in a way, it's a gamble he has to take, of course, because he doesn't have a majority. And you know, even even before all the uh, the mess of this week, you know, he was he was down to a technical majority of one. Um, so you know, if if you're him, you're thinking, well, I, you know, no matter what happens, I'm not going to be in office very long. So. The instinct, gambling instinct, is very much there. It's very much Cummings' instinct, of course. It's very much also the kind of Trumpian thing of just, you know, up the ante, you know, that whenever whenever there's trouble, double down on, on everything. So, yes, he was always going to go for, for an election as soon as he could. And he wants the election to be framed then very much in these um, tribal terms. So he, he, he wants this to be, you know, the, the, the real people of England versus the collaborators, the, 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 the surrender monkeys, the people who are selling out Britain. This is why it's going to be extremely nasty. I mean, and remember, I mean, I, I wrote a book about Brexit and I, I wrote a lot about the Second World War, you know, and, and I'm trying to say, look, this, is, this mentality is still kind of governing a lot of it. And people say, ah, that's a bit exaggerated. It's kind of a bit, you know, you saw him last week, I mean, you know, saying that the, the problem for Brexit is not to do with the governments or even with the European Union, it's to do with the collaborators, you know, who are, who are undermining his message, which is that we're going to do no deal. Um, I mean, that's very deliberate language. And, and remember now that like the hashtag on all the Tory stuff, including the official stuff today, is surrender, surrender bill. You know, so the, the, the bill that's being passed it's the surrender bill. And this is sort of wartime rhetoric, right? And it's, it's, it's very much about in wartime, we know there's, you know, there's only two sides. There's, there's the, 
the good guys and the bad guys. And we know who the bad guys are going to be. So the bad guys are going to be, obviously, you know, Corbyn and Labour and the Lib Dems and all that. But much more importantly, this is not going to be a party political thing. It's going to be an ethnic thing. You know, it's going to be about, you know, we are the people and they are the Europeans, the collaborators with the Europeans, the foreigners, the Scots. It's going to be a very anti-Scottish election. I mean, just think about the extraordinary business that a British Prime Minister representing what's supposed to be the Conservative and Unionist Party. I mean, one of the you know underlying things this week is, is him just dumping his own Scottish MPs. You know, so we saw Ruth Davidson going for you know, some personal reasons, but also, you know, I was in Scotland last week and people were expecting that to happen, you know, not, not for the personal reasons, but mm, for all sure. the political reasons, which yeah. is that she can see that Johnson's and Cummings' strategy will be actually to build up a big anti-Scottish thing. Not only will you get Corbyn, but you'll you'll get you'll get the Scots being in being in control. These horrible people who don't love us anymore. Um, and oh, everyone can remember the uh, Ed Miliband's government of chaos with the SNP in the uh, you know, in the in the last general election. But I, one, I, I mean, uh, remember that turned out. Remember Johnson Johnson's on on. Um, on record as, as you know, writing about no Scots should ever be allowed to be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, you know. I mean, you know, so he's very anti-Scottish just personally. He's a thing about the Scots. But but the the, the political point of this is that he's willing to basically dump his 13 Scots, I mean, Scots MPs. Current polling suggests that uh, they will lose at least 10 of those seats. Right? That's, that's mm. one of the things that Ruth Davis is looking at, right? Um, now, this is this is incredibly risky, right? So, so... Not only are you basically saying you're prepared to risk the union, you know, by undermining Scottish unionism, which he's going to do, but also just in terms of sheer numbers, right? You're 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 banking on how do I compensate for the loss of those Scottish seats? The only way you can compensate is 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 is, is to hope that by building up this anti-Scottish, anti-foreigner, anti-European thing, you will get those Labour seats in 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 the north and 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 midlands of England. Um, it, it's a it's a huge gamble, uh, but precisely because it's a gamble, it has to be conducted in brutal terms, right? You know, it, it's it's all or nothing. You can't you can't do a Theresa May thing about um, stability. You know, <laughs> it's mm. not going to be that. It's it's going to be revolutionary rhetoric, I think, and that's why we need to be prepared for for perhaps the dirtiest British election that we've ever seen. Because one of the things about the twenty seventeen campaign, which turned out as a surprise to many people who were, were following it. Um, was that it was framed as a Brexit campaign. It was framed as giving Theresa May the tools she needed in order to battle for, battle for Britain. Um, but it ended up not being a Brexit campaign. And there is, this is obviously going to be more and much more intensely focused on Brexit because that's unavoidable because of the timing and, and what's happened since. But there is still a, a question about whether, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of staunch traditional Labour voters will migrate um, to the Tories in particular, maybe more so than UKIP, or yeah. more so than the Brexit Party. Yeah. Vote Tory yeah. for the first time in their lives. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. You know, the gateway drug has been, the, has been well, first of all, UKIP and then the Brexit Party, you know, so that there undoubtedly were a lot and have been a lot of Labour voters who, who couldn't bring themselves to vote Tory, uh, but who felt all that kind of nationalist, uh, anti-immigrant stirring and voted for Farage. If they vote for Farage, it doesn't do Johnson any good. And that raises really one of the most fundamental questions, which is, it seems to me, you know, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think Johnson can fight this election without doing a deal with Farage. You know, the first past the post system, which uh, ironically conservatives have defended all the way along, you know, as a part of their constitution. 
I think actually really works against them in in the current set of circumstances, especially if the opposition do some kind of strategic deals in particular constituencies, which is another question. But, you know, Farage doesn't even have to take a huge amount of votes to deprive the Tories of a whole swathe of seats. Well, the recent Brecon by-election proved that because the Tories would have won that seat if there wasn't for a relatively small 5 or 6% went to... Yeah, yeah. So so if Farage runs candidates at all, it could be disastrous for for Johnson. Um, It seems to me the only way forward for Johnson is, is to do both a practical almost merger with 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 Farage but also a, a rhetorical merger right yeah so but is it not possibly true that in the same way as uh, the that Johnson and Cummings have forced the issue over the last couple of weeks with the proroguing and then with the summary dismissal of all these you know great, you know great and good of the Tory party that a deal with uh, the Brexit Party might have a similar effect on the opposition parties because yeah. Labour aren't making particularly positive noises for at the moment about you know electoral pacts or non-alignment pacts or those kinds of things. But they might be forced into yes. it by the actions. Of yes, yes. I, I, I think that's you know. Um, so we are in unprecedented territory. So so. Uh, Corbyn, as we know, is very sectarian. He's very sectarian, even within the Labour Party. Right? He doesn't do deals with with other other uh, wings of the Labour Party much. So he's he's instinctively, absolutely against it. Um, despises the Lib Dems. They despise him. You know, there's, there's a lot of bad blood. Joe Swinson, I think, has been quite crude in in her own approach to it. You know, has, hasn't helped. Um, but but if, if 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 you're looking at an alliance between Farage and Johnson. Uh, Pure self-interest starts to dictate, you know, that you have to put forward a kind of a, a, a counter-alliance. It might not be a national formal alliance, but it might be one where at least some local parties are allowed to make decisions about saying some candidates are going to stand down in 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 in, in certain areas, target particular um, Tory figures. Johnson himself, for example, I mean, he he holds a London seat, which you know, I mean, it's not very likely he would be defeated, but it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. And it's it's a majority of five or six thousand, I yeah, think, at the last yeah. Time. But you know, that's with the Lib Dems, with with Labour, you know, with a very split opposition. So the the numbers are such that I think they may well be forced into uh, an election, which is 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 really between a kind of radical right appeal coming from Johnson and Farage on the one side. Uh, and and some kind of um, you know broad, not particularly coherent opposition on the other side. Labour may need this to save itself, but there's a huge swathe of middle class English voters um, who are Remainers, who have increasingly formed a Remain political identity. Right? So w- one of the great ironies of this whole thing is that. Britain and in particular England is now the only country in Europe that has a very large popular pro-European mm. movement. I mean, genuinely popular. You know, you can get a million people on the streets. Um, 1.7 million people have have, have signed the uh, petition against prorogation. All that, you know, there's a, there is a real kind of nexus of people now who are very active. You had, as soon as the talk of an election started this week, you had very large numbers of young people um, registering to vote, you know, just spontaneously doing it. So if, if, if Corbyn... I mean, Corbyn got a lot of votes the last time because people didn't listen to him. <laughs> you know, they they yeah. thought he was going to stop Brexit, and, and they didn't think he was going to win either. And they didn't think he was going to win. But, them, yeah. you know? but also, a lot of them thought, you know, oh, he's the guy who you know who's, who's against Brexit, isn't he? So we'll, we'll vote for him. Um, if he if if Labour goes into the thing with the same, you know, he won't get away with the same thing this time, right? So they they have to have an answer. They have to have a clear 
policy. Um, but if they do, uh, they could potentially bring some of that vote back to them. If they don't, they see the other possibility is, I mean, the Lib Dems could do this incredibly well. You know, it, if, you, if you look at it in the polling terms, it's, 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 it's sort of like a, like a domino, you know. There's a certain critical point that you mm -hmm. can reach in this very fragmented uh, system with first past the post, where it could be that if you get to 28, 29% in a lot of constituencies, you, the Lib Dems could go from ha you know getting maybe 20 seats to getting maybe 200. You know, it's all this stuff is kind of possible. It's the most fluid thing that we've we've probably ever seen. But I think what Cummings and Johnson are going to be trying trying to say is um, yes, we've had actually very mixed messages. You know, maybe we've lost on that. Maybe we haven't been clear enough. We've been trying to ride different horses at the same time. We've now got rid of the doubters. We've we've purified the party. We'll do the deal with Farage, and then we know what it's about. You know, we we know this is a classic far right campaign. You know, remember I've just been in Australia. You know, and it's, it's very interesting to look at Australia. Um, I also remember Linton Crosby, right? So Linton Crosby, who is Johnson's strategist. He was also partly Mays, although he he he, he disavowed responsibility for Mays' campaign, which was a disaster. Um, uh, Crosby represents, you know, the petroleum companies, coal companies, you know, the Russians. You know, I mean, anybody he'll do it for money. But he he developed the strategy in Australia, you know, which was this populist strategy before anybody else was doing it. Really, you know, very early on, um, and it was anti-immigrant. It was anti-political. Um, you know, it was sort of uh, put a rough kind of character at the center of it. You know, not 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 a not a smooth politician. So you know, he 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 developed all that sort of stuff. So he knows how to do it. And remember, in Australia, and of course it's Murdoch. You know, the, the same nexus coming out of it. But remember, Australia, like they, they just elected somebody that nobody thought was was going to get elected. I mean, the, the the current prime minister of Australia was somebody who, in the polls, everybody said it just hasn't got a chance. You know, and they did it on. You know, all the people who are not showing up in the polls who really hate immigrants, you know, who are really, you know, paranoid about all this sort of stuff and you just appeal to them and you appeal to, you know, climate change isn't real and all that stuff. Um, and Morrison won a, you know, pretty, pretty easy, um, you know, yeah, I mean, fairly easy victory really over, over the Labour Party. So they'll be looking to repeat that. So um, given all that and given there's so much to play for in terms of what, you, what you're saying there, when we're, we're recording this on Thursday evening. Um, before we came in to the studio here, I was listening to various people in the Labour Party on the BBC talking about what their strategy is going to be over the next few days, because the next few days are going to be absolutely crucial, uh, most importantly of all, of all in deciding when this election yeah. takes place. Yeah. And there is a huge difference, isn't there, between the election taking place in mid-October and the election taking place after an extension uh, as has happened. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it would be absolutely crazy for the Labour Party or the opposition to allow Johnson to have an election before October 31st, right? So so if Johnson can run the election saying, um, I am absolutely refusing to humiliate our country by looking for another extension, that's what this election is about. I'm saying we're leaving on the 31st of October. These surrender monkeys are saying, you know, we're going to go crawling back to the Europeans, you know, on, on our hands and knees, begging for another extension. Um, if they allow him to, if that's the narrative, I, I think that's exactly what he wants, right? Um, the, the thing with Johnson, I mean, it's a very simple rule. I mean, whatever he wants, don't give it to him. You know, like whatever, whatever you can see him angling for, stop him. Um, and and you know, Johnson's absolutely right that the best chance he has 
is with a very close deadline. I mean, you could be talking just like two weeks away, right? So the election could be two weeks and you're facing that deadline and Johnson is saying, this parliament has has is trying to force me to go over to these sneering unelected bureaucrats in Brussels and beg that Britain be allowed to remain shackled to this dying, corrupt institution for for another, you know, 10 years. How, who knows how long it's going to be? We want it done and we want it done now. It's a lie, of course. It won't be done in October. It doesn't matter, you know, even if they, even if they crash out, it won't be done. Yeah. But, but that, that will be the message. Alternatively, if, 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 if Labour decides not to play this game, keep him swinging, you know, keep, keep him there. Uh, have him in this position where he, it's very obvious that he's in office but not in power. Bring in, you know, get, get through the law that says he, he has to go on the 31st of October to seek, uh, by the 31st of October to seek the, the extension. By the 19th of October. By the 19th, indeed, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, you know, to, to seek the extension on, on, on the 31st of October date. Johnson then has to turn around and say, I'm not doing that because he just can't do it. His, sure. his entire political career is over if he mm-hmm. does that. And, and what happens then? You know, and that then creates a, a constitutional crisis which is around Johnson's refusal to obey the law. That's a different kind of narrative, I think. Um, and this, The general perception at the moment, which doesn't mean it to be the perception in a few days' time, is that were that to be the situation in mid-October, that Johnson will resign as prime minister. Yes, he would have to, wouldn't he? Um, I think so. You know, but yeah. but but what what then? You know, I mean, this is I, I think this is where you know for the opposition, this is actually a very interesting kind of time, right? So Johnson resigns, presumably at that point, Queen Elizabeth has to call in Jeremy Corbyn, probably uh, yeah. as leader of the opposition. Mm-hmm. That's what their unwritten constitution um, says, you know. Uh, and what happens then? Probably what happens is that uh, the rest of the opposition says okay. Temporarily, we're going to set a caretaker a, an election or, date, or whatever, whatever for you know, four, we will, four weeks or six weeks. To, we, we'll allow the formation of a, of, a, of a caretaker government, which means that um, you know, is is that good for Johnson that 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 Corbyn can actually fight the election as prime minister? What do you think? Well, in one way, he'd like it, right? So, so it it suits the sort of rebel, you know, we're the people against the elite stuff. It's quite hard to do with Corbyn, you know, j- just because. The very notion of Corbyn being prime minister itself, you know, carries so much resonance and, and it, for good and bad for a lot of people. Um, but, but also it, it would draw attention to the simple fact that Johnson's been unable to hold power. I mean, I think this, one of the strongest things, you know, if you're running against Johnson is just, you know, is to say that he's not fit for office. He's not capable of doing this. You know, and, and this last week, you know, has, has been a pretty good demonstration of that, you know. He's been shown up, I mean, exposed to somebody who just can't do power, you know. Um, and if if he's out of office by the time the election is actually run, it sort of reinforces that, right? Doesn't it? That this guy is the shortest serving prime minister that we've ever had. Let's keep it that way, you know. It's a, it's mm. it, that sort of appeals as well to uh, you know and. It's good. Uh, Have I got news for you, Gallagher? I suppose. It, anyway, it, yeah, you know, uh, and also it, it sort of allows Labour to run a kind of class war thing as well. Like, who, who are the entitled people here? You know, he, 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 here's a guy who's who's come up through Eton and Oxford. You know, who's kind of blagged his way into into power. And look at what you get. You, you get you get somebody who, you know, doesn't know what he's doing, isn't capable. It's the the class system in this country that promotes the incompetence. You know, there's another way of kind of d- digging into popular rage. I think, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, 
all of this is so speculative because we are genuinely in a situation that we've never seen before. And we're genuinely in a situation where this is a regime which doesn't have proper rules. I mean, this is well, that's actually, there's the one last question I, I, I wanted to ask you because your your column earlier this week was about how this had showed up the, the not just the flaws, the complete you know fiasco of the unwritten um, British constitution. Um, you did quote an eminent historian and jurisprudential expert and former member of the, uh, of the Supreme Court in the yes. United Kingdom at some length. And to be fair to him, he was in like a shot with a letter on the letters page the following day um, Rebutting, at least, if not refuting, so some of some of what what you suggested, his findings. Yeah, I mean, I I admire so, Jonathan Sumption, um, as uh, Ben Johnson said about Shakespeare, decide idolatry. You know, I mean, he's an amazing figure. He's an absolutely extraordinary man, absolutely brilliant mind, and it was a very interesting letter he wrote because he 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 basically sort of accepted that everything that's going on at the moment is is absolute chaos. You know, and that there are no. Well, he's kind of saying, well, there are rules, but just these people keep breaking them. Um, yeah. And he said, you know, that the, but if, it's, the, if it's possible to break them, well, then they're not well, rules, are they? This, I, mean, I, I, I would have thought the logic is, you know, he said these are, and he used the phrase, I think, constitutional hoodlums, mm. you know, who've taken mm. over. And it's, it's like, so there's nothing wrong with our system. It's just that, you know, it, it allows constitutional hoodlums to take power. Well, if it allows, you know, if it allows people who are trying to destroy the constitution to take over the constitution, then there's something fundamentally wrong with, fundamentally wrong with it, I would have thought. So uh, usually uh, in course you say with the greatest of respect and you don't mean it, but I, I do, well, I mean, I would mean it with the greatest of respect. John Sumption, he knows vastly more about the British constitution than, than, than I will ever forget. But I just think there's a sort of plain logic of the current situation, you know, which is that the 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 point of a of a constitution surely is that it it creates transparent sets of circumstances and rules which are designed to withstand assault and people trying to undermine them. That's the point of it, right? Most constitutional rules are not there because you have to use them every day. They're there because you assume the worst about human nature and you assume the worst about how politics works and you assume, you you know, this is there to protect the state and the public. John's assumption letter was very interesting because it, it makes the completely opposite assumption, right, which is that the natural state in Britain, at least, maybe other countries might be different, but the natural state in Britain is that we're all good chaps and that good chaps know how the system works. And he says, it's all conventions. It's all, you know, we know the conventions. And, and the assumption is that everybody will want to honour the conventions. Why would good chaps not want to honour the conventions? But what happens when the bounders are in charge? You know, what happens when they're not good chaps? That's exactly, I think, why what every other democracy would say, that's exactly why you have the constitution, right? Because every other country has had the bounders in charge. You know, they've had... They've had really profoundly scarring experiences of what happens when your constitution is, is, is destroyed and undermined from within. So the UK has had its moments, hasn't it? Because we listen to you here. I mean, you know, just before the First World War, there was a threat of a of a, of a coup, a combined unionist conservative coup, which was only averted by the outbreak of the First World War, and that sort of showed up. Absolutely, you know, what absolutely. I mean, it seems to me they're extraordinarily complacent. You know, there's a deep complacency that's tied up with British exceptionalism. You know, which is that this stuff happens to other people; it doesn't happen to us. Um, you know, and it goes back to like very direct, even the use of language, for example, you know, like the 1688, the arrival of King William is called the Glorious Revolution, you know, um, and it's always called, if you look at British history, a bloodless revolution, you know. Well, you know, we, Not you know, for us, it wasn't. Yeah, we had the Battle of the Boyne and we had the Battle of Ockram and it was you know, one of the bloodiest periods in our history, you know. Mm. Um, so it's, it's as if they sort of externalise all the pain and suffering and chaos, you know. That's not, that's not the real thing. The real thing is, you know, we, we do all of these things very, in a very gentle sort of way. 
And I was very struck by a little moment, you know, on, on the Today programme um, yesterday, which will be Wednesday, uh, Rory Stewart, you know, was being interviewed about, and he was just, you know, you could see him almost like in shell shock. He was saying, like, six weeks ago, I was not just a government minister, I was a serious contender to be leader of the sure. Tory party. And now, not am I not a government minister, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm actually being thrown out of the party and, and thrown out of my, my seat in Parliament, potentially. And he said, this is the sort of thing you expect to happen in other countries. And I, I thought it was a very telling moment, you know, if you're... A good eaten boy like like Rory Stewart. I have a lot of admiration for Rory Stewart. I'm, mm. not, I'm not slagging him off, you know, but I am kind of a little bit. But among other things, he was. Uh, I think he was in the military in Iraq trying to establish it, democracy there, exactly, wasn't he? and in Afghanistan and all that. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it was just that little moments where he said, "This is the sort of thing you ex- you, you know you expect to happen in, in other. It's almost like Britain is like another country, you know." And I think this is it's funny in a way, but it's also it's a big part of what's been going on. You know, you don't get yourself into this kind of state over imaginary oppression, which is what they've done, if you know what the real thing is like. You know, you, you don't play with fire when you know what it's like to get burned. Almost, I think pretty much every other European country right, has a sense deep in its psyche, you know, of, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you really want to create anarchy, you know, there are consequences. And... Um, you don't know what those consequences will be, but the chances are historically that they'll be pretty damn bad. Whereas the, the Johnson stuff, you know, the fact that that can happen, this kind of game playing, remember this is all still sort of Eton Oxford internal Tory party game being played. You know, and that, it's that it doesn't really have consequences. You know, you can play with the no deal thing because, oh, well, you know, it'll only be a bump in the road. You know, it doesn't matter really too, too much. And my hedge fund has moved to Dublin and it's all fine. You know, there's, there's very little sense of danger. And I think this is one of the underlying forces that that's at play here. And it's not just within the, 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 the political system, but, you know, polls show people are asked, you know, do you think no deal is going to be bad? You know, most people say, ah, no, it's all exaggerated, you know. Um, and there's a it's funny kind of business about no matter how often they see evidence. And, of course, the latest evidence is all coming from government itself, you know, all the Yellowhammer stuff, you know, about how bad it is, is, is just discounted, you know, because after all, this is England. And after all, this bad stuff doesn't really happen in England. And if it does happen, it'll happen for a little while. We'll get over it. It'll, you know, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be fine. There's a sort of insouciance, which is, is partly a sort of upper class recklessness. But there's a... Well, it's not just upper class. There's a popular insouciance as well. Mm. You know, there's, there's, yeah, exactly. There, you know, there's a sense that actually to be English is somehow not to get your knickers in a knot about these things. You know, just, just, just carry on. And uh, the problem is that, that it's real, you know. Like that, that, that it's it's trying to convince people that this is about to happen, and you come back to the same question over and over again: Do they have to experience the pain before they believe it's real? Yeah, I'm afraid some knickers are going to be knotted over the next few weeks. We'll see how that turns out. Thanks for dropping by. Fit. Pleasure. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. Give us an email at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 